Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Continuing our series on 2 Kings, we've seen how the early chapters emphasize the ministry of the prophet Elisha, which stands in contrast to that of his mentor, Elijah. Elijah's focus seemed to be on the spiritual battle for the kingdom of Israel, but also took time to extend the Lord's mercy to individual persons. For Elisha, that emphasis appears to be reversed. But in this episode, the emphasis returns to God's dealings with the kingdoms of men, and the prophet becomes a supporting player in this drama. We're also going to see how the prophecies of Elijah continue to reverberate, long after he has left the scene. Um, we'll begin in Second Kings, chapter 8. Actually, that's not where we're going to begin. We're going to begin in First Kings, chapter 19, because that's where our story this day begins. These are the words that God spoke to Elijah when Elijah had fled to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and pleaded for a word from God, and left his complaint there before God, and God did not specifically answer his complaint. He gave him this word. And chapter 19 of uh, 1 Kings, verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way in the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu son of Nimshi shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abimaholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Moving on to the next chapter, actually to uh, chapter 21. Elijah returning back directly and personally fulfills the third of those commissions, and that is to appoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And essentially, he does not appoint him to be prophet in his place as such. He ultimately leaves that prerogative to God himself. But Elisha has been, let's say, let's call it in the uh, expression of our current day, he has been pre-approved. And Elijah selects Elisha to accompany him for the remainder of his days. Elisha shall be the one who will fulfill the next two of Elijah's commissions. It's not that Elijah, it's not that God was ever displeased with Elijah. He just gave him an early retirement. Yes. Now, before all of that took place, however, Ahab commits the sin that will actually bring judgment 
upon his house, upon his dynasty. This is an interesting thing, how God's attitude toward Ahab moves. Because up until this point, Ahab has introduced Baal worship into Israel. That is not the sin for which God invoked the judgment of condemnation upon Ahab. He condemns the Baalism. And he sends, and Elijah's main task in this, in this world is to defeat Baalism in Israel. But that is not the sin for which Ahab is ultimately condemned and his dynasty is revoked. No. It is for an individual act against one man and his family. All of these, you know, it's interesting. What, what gets God's dander up, if you will pardon the expression? What finally crosses the line for Ahab with God is when he yields to the temptation of his Baalite wife to use Baalite methods to acquire property. Which is, of course, through deception, thievery, and murder. There are legal ways to do that in Baalism. There is no legal way to do that in the law of God. And so, Ahab steals Naboth's vineyard in that way, has Naboth unjustly condemned before the community, has Naboth and his entire family put to death. He has plausible deniability. He never touched any of it. He didn't even find the false witnesses. God holds him accountable because he's the king. And verse 17 of chapter 21, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lift your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I found you. Kind of reminds me of Joshua's words, be sure your sin will find you out. I found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. By the way, it is the Lord who's speaking. Through Elijah. These are not Elijah. It's not Elijah who's going to bring anything on Ahab. Elijah's not going to do a thing to Ahab. All he's doing is he's just the messenger boy. Well, he's a little bit more than just the messenger boy, as we have seen in the story of Elijah. But right now, he's just delivering the word. And the word from the Lord is this 
I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger which you have provoked me, and because you've made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone who belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And now, you do understand both the literal and the symbolic significance of both of these statements. If the dogs eat you, that means you have not been given a proper burial, you have not received honor, and that means basically you're under the... Either way, if the birds of the air eat your flesh or if the dogs of the town eat your flesh, you're, that, that means you've kind of been dissed. True? Just, yeah. <laughs> now that, and that, those judgments are pronounced by whom? They are pronounced by God through Elijah. The great sermon by R.G. Lee, Payday Someday, brings out vividly the slow and long passage seemingly, it, it looks like Ahab's going to get away with it. It looks like God's word is going to fail. Three years pass by and there is peace in the land. And the Syrians are minding their own business. And King Ben-Hadad in Damascus is not doing anything threatening. And there is peace in the land. And it looks like Ahab's sitting pretty. It looks like everything's going fine. And then the war starts. And Ahab goes to war. And he's mindful of the prophecy that Elijah has made and so he makes sure that he does not become conspicuous in battle as the king. He lets Jehoshaphat go out in his kingly regalia but he shows up just as a armor, just as a regular charioteer. And if you remember the way that the writer of Kings tells the story, a certain archer aimed his bow at random and just let the arrow fly. But it was a certain archer. It wasn't just an arrow that came out of nowhere. There was a certain archer. And the implication is, it was an archer appointed by God to be the executioner of Ahab. And it hit the one spot in his armor, on that arc as it came, as that arrow flew. Not aimed. Just let fly in battle, and as that arrow flew, the ark just happened to find that one slip between plate and joint in his armor and hit him in a spot that caused him not to die immediately. It didn't hit a vital organ, but he bled out. And by the end of the day, he was dead in his chariot. And they took his chariot, they, they left, they buried him out in the field. They took his chariot 
and drove it to Jezreel and washed the blood out of his chariot and dogs licked his blood as according to the words of Elijah there in the field of Naboth. But now it looks like Jezebel still, she's still (coughs) queen mother. She's still ruling and reigning. And although Baalism has been dealt a crippling blow, it's not out of the picture. It's not totally out. There's still Baalite prophets. There's still Baalite. There's still the Baal business. It's gone a little bit underground. But the Baal business is still going strong. And Jezebel's still the queen mother, and she's still in power. And her son, the older son Ahaziah didn't last long. He lasted one year. Jehoram, second son of Ahab, takes his place. And there's a good 10 or 12 years there of reign of Jehoram. Meanwhile, we've got the ministry of Elisha. And there are several times that Elisha comes through and saves Joram's bacon, if you'll pardon the expression. For Israelites, after all. And it looks like it looks like God is fighting for Jehoram. It looks like God is 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 helping keep helping prop this kingdom up. What happened to the word? Has God just forgotten what he said or has God changed his mind? Has God decided that the house of Ahab isn't all that bad after all? First, Second Kings chapter 8. Elisha came to Damascus. Elisha just shows up in Damascus. We don't know what specific business or what cover story Elisha had for going to Damascus. They did not necessarily know why Elisha had gone to Damascus. There was some reason, some presenting thing. As I say, some cover story. We've already seen that that Elisha has served as God's secret agent. And God is feeding Elisha intelligence from the king of Syria's uh, own, even not only his war councils, his bedchamber. And Elisha is passing on these words back to the king of Israel. So we already know Elisha is a secret agent of God. So whatever Elisha's cover story is, we don't know, we're not told, but he goes to Damascus. And he's, he receives a pretty good welcome in Damascus, despite the fact that he's the prophet who's brought defeats. He's also the prophet who saved an entire Syrian regiment from destruction and has actually served as a peacemaker of sorts between Syria and Israel. So he is now known as something of a mediator between these two kingdoms. And Ben-Hadad regards him uh, somewhat highly. And Ben-Hadad has a, an illness, a critical illness that has him laid up. And he sends to Elisha and say, asks if, uh, if he's going to survive this, if, he's going to, if he will recover from this illness. He sends a small gift, yeah, 
still thinking that he can bribe God, apparently. But that, you know, that's the way Baalites do things. Baalites bribe God. <coughs> By the way, any kind of religion that you have where you think that you can buy off God, that's basically Baalite. Baalite. That's basically an idolatry. But he goes, he sends all of these, says, your son Ben-Hadad has sent, and he sends flattering words, your son Ben-Hadad, you know, I've, I'm, I'm your boy, you know, you, you can, you know, you can give it to me. He says, go say to him, uh, and he sends Hazael, chief of staff. Elisha said to him, verse 10, go say to him, you certainly shall recover. But the Lord has sown to me that he shall certainly die. Now that has been a perplexing statement. And one of the things that's perplexing, you know, it looks like, well, Elisha, is Elisha lying? <coughs> is Elisha instructing him to tell a lie? And there are three ways of looking at this. One of them is looking at the, uh, actually the Hebrew is ambiguous. Because go that, that, that word him in Hebrew is also has the same phonic sound of the word no. And that this phrase could be translating translating uh, go say to him not recovering shall you recover. Not recovering, shall you recover? Or it could be translated as it has in most of our translations say to him, you shall surely recover. It could be also simply that Elisha is saying, is just telling him, oh, if it was just his illness, he'd recover from the illness. It's the illness he will recover from. But he is going to die. Because Elisha knows. God has shown Elisha what's going to happen. And God has already, God told Elijah what was going to happen. Look, keep reading. Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. Elisha just tells him, he shall surely, he, He's going to die. And he just looks at Hazael. And Hazael knows that he's been, he's been made. Hazael, he, Hazael knows now that Elisha knows that he has already planned to assassinate the king. Oh yeah, go ahead and tell him he's going to recover. You can tell him whatever you want to tell him. Because, yeah, you're going to kill him. You know it. I know it. The American people know it. Every reader of the Bible knows it. So, he f and the man of God wept. Now here he is sent on a commission from God. And that commission from God is, you're going to anoint Hazael king. 
and, you, and you're going to anoint Hazael king because I'm going to use Hazael to punish my people. And Elisha looked at him. Elisha didn't, didn't like what he was doing. He didn't like what he had to do. He didn't, he didn't like his mission, but he was obedient. And he wept. His heart was broken. And Hazael, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, well, what's... Hazael's trying to cover. Said, what, what is your servant? Who, who's but a dog that he should do this great thing? By the way, this is the uh, Assyrian king on thing, uh, where he mentions Hazael, calls him the son of a nobody. Hazael had no royal blood. He had, no, you know, there was nothing, nothing in Hazael that that gave him. I mean, he just he just came out of nowhere. He was uh, to become king of Syria. What am I that I'm a dog that I should do this great thing? Elisha said, "The Lord has shown me that you're to be king over Syria." And he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you'd certainly recover. But the next day he took a bedcloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, whom Jehoshaphat... Okay, you've got appointment of... These are words that were spoken to Elijah about 15 years before that this would be done. When those words were spoken, Hazael was, was a nobody. Now he's the number two man in the kingdom. Now tomorrow he's the number one man in the kingdom. Because he's an assassin as well. The fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, whom Jehoshaphat was king, uh, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now, don't, don't get upset about the, the ordering of it because you, you get, and you try to put a one-to-one -one chronology of the, you know, of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, you know, and you like, try to line it. Get a chart. It's, it's not that, it, but there are some kings who have a co-regency with their father. And sometimes that's mentioned and sometimes it isn't. There's not real consistency. Why is there no consistency? Well, part of the reason is that's not the point of the writing of this book. It's not in order to give us a linear history of the kings of Israel. It's to give us a, a writing of God's history of what He is doing in this world to bring Messiah forward. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the eyes in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant. Since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So, but he began to, God began to chip away from what, the stuff that he had. And in his, his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. So that the 
then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commander struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So basically what we have here is described a battle where he goes, he goes in a, into war to reclaim Edom, and he gets surrounded, and he fights his way out of it, but basically loses most of his army. Then Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the ask of Joram and all that he did, aren't they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? So if you want to know really what happened to him, go read in the library. And you know, all of those books had perished. So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That does not bode well. That announcement right there just lets us know ahead of time what's coming up next is not going to have a happy ending for Ahaziah. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the, in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead. They've lost Ramoth-Gilead again. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Joram, was king of Judah when he went down, uh, the king of Judah went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in, his, in Jezreel because he was sick. All of that is a setup for what's about to take place next. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him tie up your garments now what does that mean? yeah get ready to run get ready to run this is not this is going to be a rush delivery the following message is express Take this flask of oil in your hand. Go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. <coughs> Jehu. Name is probably a shortened name for something that was long, but the name Jehu means he is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is Jehovah. Elisha. My God saves. He anoints Jehu. He says, I want you to anoint Jehu. Take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. You realize that there are only three Kings that are spoken of specifically in this book, First and Second Kings, of being anointed. Solomon, Jehu, and Joash. This is the only one of the kings of Israel who is anointed. 
What is the Hebrew word for anointed one? Mashiach, Messiah. What is the Greek word for anointed one? Christos, Christ. Now we're going to have all kinds of problems here, especially if we are sentimental and subjective and have bowed the knee to the ethical bales of our time, whether we realize it or not. Because Jehu is a type of Christ. What do I mean by a type of Christ? A type, a, the Greek word tupas, it actually it, it is an impression that is made that is, forms a form which is a prophetic pre-echo of something that Jesus is going to do and what he is going to fulfill. A role that Christ will fulfill. Jehu becomes a type of Christ. I'm telling you right now this and I'm letting you know already a lot of folks have problems with this. Because as with all of the types of Christ in the Old Testament of all of the types of Christ, Jehu will prove to be one of the unworthiest in terms of his personal character. The unworthiness of his character does not change the fact that he is a type of the Christ who is to come. Observe. Jehu, he's an he's officer in the military commanding the forces at Ramoth Gilead. The king, the king of Israel has been wounded. He's gone to Jezreel. King of Judah, who is participating in this military operation, has gone to visit his cousin. Is this Jehoshaphat different from the king of Judah then? Is Jeho a descendant of... No, Je, no. This is that, he, his father's name. By the way, his father's name. It was the same name as the king of Judah, but it was a, that was a different man. He was not a. He is not related to the Jehoshaphat as the king. Thanks for bringing that up and clear, so we can clear that up right away. The Jehoshaphat. By the way, though, his father's name means Yahweh is judge, and that also is significant. Jehu ben Jehoshaphat. So, and this is when Elisha was a young man still serving to Elijah. No. Elijah, Elisha now is an older prophet. Elisha has gone up, Elijah has gone up into heaven. Elisha has served. This is toward the end of Elisha's ministry. As a matter of fact, this is one of the last of the prophetic acts of Elijah, of Elisha that is described. I'm fulfilling this, this task. Well, he came and he came, went to Ramoth Gilead. Verse 5, he came and behold, the commanders of the army were in council. He says, I have a word for you, commander. Jehu said, to which of us all? He said, to you, O commander. So he arose, went to the house. The young man poured the oil on his head and says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord. 
over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. It's a little more expanded message than the one that Elisha gave to him to give. And we don't know whether uh, Elisha's message is contracted by the writer of Kings so that he doesn't duplicate himself in this instance, or whether the, the young prophet just got excited. Uh, but <laughs> either way, at this point, then he does get out of there quick and run out, as, he's, as Elisha has told him to do. Now, so here comes Jehu out of out of the house there that he that he's staying out of his his command house and and he's dripping with oil this flask of oil is and he's he's got oil dripping from his head everybody says everybody says what did he tell you in there and Jehu says oh nothing as you know you know how you know, this you know this guy's kind of a nut anyway and so um Mm -hmm. And so thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel, and in haste... So he finally says to him, This is what he said to me, I'm anointing you king over Israel. And everybody said, We're in. So, in haste, every man of them took his garment, took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. What does that remind you of? They took his garments and threw it down in front of him so that he wouldn't have to walk on the dirt. What does that remind you of? The procession of Jesus into Jerusalem. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram with all Israel had gone to Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city and go tell the news in Jezreel. And then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So we've got this set up. You've got both the king of Israel and the king of Judah who, unbeknownst to them, are trapped in the city of Jezreel. They, didn't, they don't know that they're trapped. They don't know what's going on here. They don't know what's going down. Now the watchman was standing in the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and says, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman out to meet them and, say, and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around right behind. The watchman reported saying the messenger reached him, but he's not coming back. Now, what we've got here, we, we know what's going on. But we are given this picture of what's going on behind the wall and led to understand the confusion and the curiosity of Joram who's there, I mean, he's recovering from his wounds. He's obviously mobile, but he's, re he's still in recovery. 
And so he, he's standing up there and he's watching, and he's got this word, there's a company coming off, coming here. Well, go find out about it. Go find out. I mean, is it, it's our guys, yeah, but they're, they're coming at this. So go find out if it's peace. And is it peace? What do you have to do with peace? Fall in. So he set out a second horseman, said to him, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around right behind me. And again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. He drives furiously. Literally, he drives like a madman. That's literally what it says. He drives like a madman. He drives like a Meshuggah. Joram said, Make ready. They made ready his chariot. Bad idea. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot, to, went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Hmm. It's almost like this was predetermined. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidgar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember, now we find out a detail that we did not know. Back 15 years ago, when Elijah comes up and confronts Naboth there in, or confronts Ahab there in Naboth's vineyard, Ahab had some army officers with him, and among them was a junior officer named Jehu. And another officer, another lieutenant there named Bidkar. And now they've come up and they're serving in the ranks together. And Bidkar is now the, per, the aide to Jehu who has risen to the rank of commander of the, of the army. And he looks back and he says to his aide, Remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now they take him up and throw him on this plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And then Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. Now, so basically, they have, they've got a pursuit going. And Ahaziah, he's fleeing, he's fleeing south. He's trying to make it back to his home territory. He's not going to get there. And they shot him in the chariot in the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. He fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. Well, that will be a significant detail later. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Jezebel defiant to the end. She put on her makeup, fixed her hair, looked out the window. 
Verse 31, and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? You remember Zimri? We laughed about Zimri way back there. He was king for a week. He assassinated... uh, He was one of those army officers who assassinated the king and then found out that he didn't have any support from anybody else and ended up being trapped in a city and burned the tower around himself. She says, are you coming in peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, who's on my side, who? And two or three eunuchs looked at him and he said, throw her down. And they pitched her out of the window. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled her. Just bring up just a little detail in Hebrew that you don't necessarily get in English translation. This is correctly translated. This is the same word in Hebrew that's used for the sprinkling of the blood on the altar by the priest. And then he went in and ate and drank. It's as though Jezebel is the peace offering sacrifice. The word peace keeps coming up as a theme in this chapter. Do you hear it? Over and over. There is no peace, there is no peace, there is no peace until Jezebel is out of the way. And until the blood of Naboth is avenged. Blood cries out. Innocent blood cries out. And the blood of Naboth must be avenged. This is the aspect of the role of the Messiah that people in our modern day who have succumbed to the subjectivity and amorality of our present era don't like to acknowledge and accept. This is not... This is the part of the role of Jesus which is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild who blesses the children. There is that role of our Savior. But our Savior, when He comes again, will come as an avenger. We are taught by our Lord that we are not to take vengeance. That we are to forgive one another as God has forgiven us that we are to pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and teaches us that we are not to retaliate against those who do evil against us but to pray for them and to do good to those who hate us and to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us that we may be children of our Heavenly Father who is good to all. But we are also taught by His apostles. Paul tells us, do not take vengeance and gives us the reason, the theological undergirding why. Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. To me belongs vengeance, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God. The only judge is God. People say, don't judge me. 
And somehow or another, that is the only teaching of Jesus that seems to have filtered into our present culture. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And we are denied the right to show judgment to anybody, whether right or wrong. You just, you just can't do that. Well, that's rooted in the concept that only God is the final competent judge. But God says, to me belong vengeance and recompense. I will repay, says the Lord. And that is a teaching of the New Testament. Have you read the book of Revelation lately? And when he comes, he will judge them with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. What proceeds from the mouth? <coughs> Words. His judgment will proceed and it will be accomplished with a word. He won't have to lay a hand. It will be his words. But he comes as an avenger. And Jehu fulfills the type of Christ as the avenger. When you look in the book of Revelation, you see the, a scene in which saints who have been <coughs> slain by the beast rising out of the sea the saints who have been slain by the Antichrist are under the altar and they are crying out for vengeance. And they are told, wait a little while. It's not time. Be patient. You will be avenged. There is something in our hearts that does cry out for vengeance. And we may try to nice it over. And we try to liberalize everything. And when you have not been hurt, you can accuse other people who have been seriously hurt and injured and who have had possession taken away, who have had lives taken away from them. And taken away even with violence. And you can say in all niceness, oh, we shouldn't judge. We shouldn't look for vengeance. A righteous system of justice takes an impartial look but accords vengeance for those who have been injured. The name of God is now being avenged. Why was Naboth such a cause that God decided this is the line you've crossed and I will not permit this? Why was Naboth that line? God chose to draw the line at Naboth because of all the people in Israel at that time, Naboth was one of a few who still honored the name of the Lord. And Naboth was one of the few who still honored the name of the Lord enough to say, I know I would make a good profit if I sold this land, but it's not mine to sell. It belongs to the name of the Lord.
God avenges Naboth because Naboth is aligned with God. But Naboth becomes a casualty of the war. His name in the kingdom of heaven is an honored one in that regard. Naboth loses nothing. Naboth's vengeance is not simply about Naboth. It is about a whole nation that has sold itself to idolatry for profit and for pleasure and for power. And Jehu comes as the avenger of blood. Unfortunately, Jehu Jehu fulfills the word of the Lord so long as it works for Jehu. Let's just go ahead and say that. So long as it's good for Jehu, so long as it works for him, so long as it fits his purposes, Jehu is going to fulfill the word of the Lord. Up to a point, he does what he's supposed to do. And God commends him for fulfilling what he's supposed to do. Prophet Hosea later condemns him, however, because his vengeance is excessive. God has pronounced judgment upon the house of Ahab. God has not pronounced judgment upon the house of David. And yet, among those that Jehu assassinates, kills, expunges, purges, are those from the house of David who have come up to visit their relative who they don't know is no longer king or no longer living on this side of the earth. That's going to happen. That's going to fall uh, fall on. But notice, uh, let's see, let's pick out one or two things before we part. No, no, I won't get into that. We'll have to, we'll have to save because there is a character who, who's introduced here that will become significant even to the prophet Jeremiah who's introduced in 2 Kings. We'll find out about him. That's in chapter 10. Before we go any further, I need to make a correction to some things I said here where I repeatedly mentioned that Elijah's prophecy of judgment on Jezebel and the house of Ahab was finally fulfilled 15 years after it was made. I was looking at the wrong timeline when I said that. It was actually more like 21 years. But Jehu has followed through with the destruction of Ahab's household with great zeal, possibly excessively so. But he's not finished yet. In our next episode, we'll see the lengths to which he goes and then does not go. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.